0: Microphone check, one, two, three. City, city, sibilance, sibilance. Levels check, good, sounds good. One, two, three, rolling, and.
1: I think we can be exchanging stories that bring value to our lives. You know, they may not be always monetary value. I I have films that have not sold, that I put a lot of money and God knows cashed in a lot of chips with my family life to make them, and then they never sold, you know? And so, to that extent, we're all kind of gamblers. But you keep going because when you do nail it, or even when you get it partially right, you know, the rewards are really good. They're really good.
0: Hello, and welcome to The Documentary Life, a show that sets out to inspire and inform you on how to best live and lead your own documentary life. I'm your host, Chris G. Parkhurst, and this is episode number 120, and it is brought to you by Barong Films, proud creators of Documentary Film, the Documentary Life Podcast, and the Documentary Academy, our industry-changing A to Z documentary filmmaking program that will transform you into the documentary filmmaker that you've always wanted to be. Find out more at the slash academy. weeks ago, we were in the provincial town of Stung Treng, which lies along the east side of the Mekong and Sekong rivers. It's located just south of the border with Lao. We were doing some filming with the granddaughter of the late great Cambodian singer Sun Si Samut. The late singer, as you may know, is at the heart of our current documentary film, Elvis of Cambodia. The granddaughter was meeting with her grandmother, the widow who has been living in Stungtrang for nearly her whole life, and in fact lives in the house that she and her husband built. We last went to Stung and visited with Kyo Torn Yat six years ago when we first started on what we thought was going to be a short doc film about her husband. A big part of the reason that we were going back out to film with her was because the prior interview that we had on camera was done with another character in our film. However, as I said, this was a few years ago when we thought we were actually filming something other than the story that it has now come to be. Of course, this sort of thing happens all of the time in documentary, right? The story that we end up with is, it's often not the story that we originally set out to tell. This can be pretty frustrating or even maddening, but of course it's also, uh, hopefully even more so, uh, a very exciting part, an expected part of documentary. The discovery is often a huge part of the process of documentary filmmaking, and that discovery, maybe even more often than not, leads to different unforeseen directions in our film. This has certainly been the case with Elvis. Even more so, actually. What was initially thought to be a short bio doc about a famous singer has now turned into a feature documentary about the legacy of said famous singer. And so the issue with the original interview that we had shot with the Widow was twofold. It contained another character literally in the frame for like 90% of the interview, and it was really a conversation between these two characters. Since that time, we've realized that we don't want these characters to be played in this fashion, that in fact, they won't be meeting like this at all in our film, and thus, This interview, it couldn't really be used, certainly, at least in the visual sense. We could use the audio from much of it, but we had almost zero shots with only her in the frame. So basically, we needed to reshoot the interview years later so we could establish this as an interview that was conducted solely with her. We could mix and match the audio, but we had to establish that the scene was all about her and and not this conversation with the other character. Furthermore, recent developments in our story necessitated that we had granddaughter and grandmother meeting up and having some pretty important interactions. So, we set out to Stung trying again, six years later, to reshoot an interview and to shoot an additional couple of sequences. The interview exceeded our expectations. It ran nearly two hours and we were only expecting for a relatively quick 45 minutes really just to re-ask certain questions and maybe get a couple of additional questions that might better serve our story. And the interview, and I kind of use interview in quotes, really ended up being a lovely conversation between granddaughter and grandmother, although it was not shot this way or intended to be this way at all. So chara, the granddaughter was was seated beside me next to the camera. And because my Khmer was limited and grandma didn't speak any English, I needed a translator, right? However, I had made the conscious decision not to employ our usual fixer, Pond because I'd wanted something a little more intimate. And I thought that Sochara, the granddaughter, might help me achieve that. Which she did. And then some. You see, towards the end of the interview, we get to a pretty delicate part of the discussion. The death of Kayotornyat's son, the father of Sochara. Now, beforehand, I had warned Sochara this might happen, but I didn't mention anything to Grandma. I wanted the purity and authenticity of the moment to play out. And the truth is, I had rarely, if ever, seen much emotion from Grandma, even at the funeral of her son, who had died when we were last living and filming in Cambodia, even at a significant benefit event that was put on for her and her family and her son. She had always struck me as a pretty stoic, pretty non-emotive person. The granddaughter, Sochada even reaffirmed this with me many times over the years, which made what transpired during the latter part of the interview that much more impactful both potentially for the film, of course, but also in the moment, the moment of real life, if you will. In the middle of her answer to my question about the passing of her son, who had been leading the legacy, which was now being led by the granddaughter, who has been somewhat unexpectedly making a career out of music herself, she began sobbing, uncontrollably, which was soon followed by the quiet sobbing sounds of Sochara, the granddaughter. Somehow, I was completely taken by surprise by this. In hindsight, I should not have been, right? This was a moment that would have been difficult for most anyone to talk about. I guess I'd just been so used to this stoic side of grandma, and again, had always heard this from, from Sochara about her grandmother as well. I, I just didn't see it coming. But it did. Then it went on for a good minute or two of which I, of course, did the best that I could as a doc filmmaker and as a human being. I wanted to honor the moment, and I wanted to honor the story. One part of me was really feeling the emotion in the room, trying to stay connected to that. And another part of me wanted to stay connected to the story. I knew that this could really resonate with an audience. So I kept rolling and only after things had settled for a bit did I then call for a five-minute break to let everyone collect their thoughts. I went over to Grandma to make sure that she was okay. After about five minutes, I asked another question or two, just to kind of finish on a softer, more positive note, but this was really more for all of us involved, not really for the film. I just didn't want to end the filming or the interview on that kind of a somber note. Later that night, when the day was done and we had gone back to the guest house, my friend Patrick, who was helping me with the day's filming, was asking me about the interview, specifically about the sensitivity of that particular moment. And he asked me what I thought my responsibility was as a doc filmmaker, asking this kind of personal, potentially very sensitive line of questioning. His question itself didn't surprise me. It's one that I've thought about and discussed with other doc filmmakers many, many times. This idea of our responsibility to the subject versus the responsibility to the story of the film. What did surprise me was that I think I'd kind of gotten to a place where after the filming, after making sure everyone was okay, I'd go off into my world, right? Into my life or into the next thing to film for the day. And I'd left the past behind me. I'd left the moments behind me. That is to say, I'd moved on from the moment, and I really don't mean that insensitively at all. I moved on and and just kept pushing forward with what I needed to do next for the film. Maybe even without thinking about the repercussions of what had transpired for the person I'd been filming with or interviewing with. I was thankful for Patrick's question. It was a much needed reminder that we're dealing with human beings, with real people in our films every day. And it's not just about the film or the interview or the story or whatever. This whole thing that we're doing, it's also about the people that we're interacting with while we're making our doc films. It is about real, honest, sometimes extremely vulnerable moments that we should be so honored to be a part of and even more honored to be able to share these vulnerable, all too real and human moments with the world in an effort not only to convey our stories, but also to be able to connect with other human beings in a vulnerable and real way. And it is my humble opinion, and it is my experience, that it's not really an and or or kind of thing. We can both honor that vulnerable moment while it's happening, and we can honor the moment in telling the best, most authentic story that we can. Next up on The Documentary Life, we're going to speak to Academy Award-nominated and Emmy Award-winning documentary filmmaker Irene Taylor Brodsky, who will also talk a bit about her own, sometimes directly personal experiences dealing with filming-sensitive situations in her own immediate family. But before we do that, a quick note to let you know that this will be the last episode of Season 2 of the show. We'll be releasing a special bonus episode in two weeks time, and it's actually gonna be a pretty cool one, but this will be the last official episode of this season. All right, my conversation with Irene coming up next, here on The Documentary Life. A quick shout out and thank you to Music Vine for supplying us with some of the music for today's episode. If you're interested in learning a little bit more about how Music Vine might be able to serve your doc project, you can check out the show notes for today's episode or you can simply go to their website at musicvine.com. If you're subscribed to our TDL newsletter or part of our private Facebook community, then you'll know how excited we are to work more closely with you, our fellow DocLifers, throughout 2020 to help you in making your documentary film projects. The best way for us to do this is to work with you face-to-face so that you can receive valuable information, tips, resources, and advice directly from us and can ask any questions that you have in real time. Getting the answers you need will allow you to take immediate action on making and completing your documentary film. That is why we recently launched our full program of weekly live interactive workshops, which cover a multitude of topics on making a documentary film and we'll be continuing to add even more over the coming months. We have a wealth of industry and filmmaking experience that we are going to share with you. Let us save you the time, money, and frustration of learning these things on the fly and allow us to help you confidently and with super-focused clarity move forward with your film. Our first workshop launches Wednesday, the 8th of January, and it's called Going Solo with Your Documentary Filmmaking. In it, we will help you uncover how to make your documentary film with little to no crew, equipment, or experience. Completing this workshop will mean you are more capable, organized, and skilled in making your documentary film on your own. To learn more about our Going Solo with Your Documentary Filmmaking Workshop and to take a look at the schedule for our other documentary film workshops, simply go to thedocumentarylife.com slash workshops. Registration is now open with a promotional offer until the end of the year. So don't wait. Secure your spot today at thedocumentarylife.com slash workshops. Irene Taylor Brodsky is an Oscar-nominated Emmy and Peabody Award-winning filmmaker whose first feature documentary, Here and Now, won the Audience Award at Sundance in 2007, a Peabody Award and numerous jury and audience awards around the world. Her other award-winning films include Open Your Eyes, One Last Hug, Three Days at Grief Camp, Saving Pelican 895, and the Oscar-nominated The Final Inch. She has recently created a sequel to Here and Now, Moonlight Sonata, Deafness in Three Movements, which had its world premiere at Sundance this year and is now set for its premiere on HBO. Irene Taylor Brodsky, welcome to the documentary Life. I'm excited to speak with you today on a number of levels. One, I just realized when we booked this that, hey, I know this person when I lived in Portland. How are you, Irene?
1: I'm great. I'm talking to you from Portland. Uh, It seems like a million miles away, but you sound like you're right here. So it's good.
0: (laughs) how is the weather in Portland at the moment? Is it, is it, is it dreary yet? I don't imagine it is quite yet. I hope it's not.
1: Let me surprise you. Let me surprise you. It's raining.
0: Oh shoot. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) So it
1: is.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I was hopeful for you since it's still early October. (laughs)
1: No, 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 no. But you know what? I, I'm on a huge deadline and for any doc filmmakers or people who know the the dread of dreadlines of deadlines, um, When it's raining out, you're so thankful.
2: Yeah, yeah, it
1: must be so hard to live in Los Angeles yeah, and have right. to meet it. You <laughs> right. know, do I go to the beach today? Do I go skateboarding? Do I go out for a white wine lunch? Or do I? Edit or my do film? I work hard on my film? <laughs> yeah, yeah, and. Uh, get the job done. You know, it helps to live in Portland. It
0: does. It does. <laughs> so what we kind of like to do on the show traditionally Irene is we we like to back up and start somewhat at the beginning of one's doc life, if you will, and kind of get to some of the ways and reasons in which one came to documentary filmmaking. Now, I know that you were a Himalayan mountain guide, right? And this in fact maybe is where sort of unofficially your first documentary was made. Can you tell us about this experience or if you feel like you should go before that? Because again, we'd like to understand a little bit how doc filmmaking came into your life and how that came to be a thing.
1: Yeah. Well, I, I think it's fair to say that photography was my first true love Yeah, documentary filmmaker it, that, that, that moniker came much later and documentary filmmaking came somewhat in between Mm. it took me seven or eight years of actually making documentary films when my mentor said to me irene you're a documentary filmmaker Mm. and i said no i'm not that's what other people do i'm just a photographer who's like getting day jobs doing this and that and writing grants that no one funds and i'm not a filmmaker i'm a struggling photographer right so that's really how I understood my identity, hmm. and you know, I only bring up the identity because I've been doing this now. I can't believe it, but for 28 years, my 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 first my first documentary I worked on was when I was 20. Right. So right. Um, so you know, I I uh, I I grew up with a dark room. My parents uh, were very active darkroom photographers, which is to say they took pictures with the motivation and the intent that they would be processing and developing them themselves.
2: Mm.
1: And as a little kid, I had a darkroom in my home that was the size of a master bedroom in New York City. I mean, it was... uh, it was really this idyllic situation, which of course I could never have appreciated then. And my dad is an is an engineer and chemist. He, he yeah. he's got graduate degrees in chemistry. So you can you can you can bet your bottom dollar we had sixty eight degree water.
0: Yeah. That's right. Your dad didn't work at Kodak, did he?
1: He didn't, but we lived okay. in Rochester, New York. Right, right.
0: Where I'm and originally so
1: from. there was a certain kind of gung ho mentality. Yeah about DIY photography yeah, yeah, Um, and we had a dark room and frankly, that wasn't that unusual. A lot of people, this was the seventies. So, uh, so that's really how I first came to be very engaged in, in sort of the visual plot points of storytelling.
0: Now bridge the gap for us between that time and then the Sundance award winning here and now officially your first documentary film.
1: So when I left Nepal, I came back to the U S and for about five years, I made my bread and butter making television documentaries. So I actually made, uh, five documentaries with television breaks that were 40 minutes long, Mm. 90 minutes long. So I, I was basically working in a, in the documentary field, Mm. but I wasn't actually directing anything of my own. So Actually, it ha- I made here and now because I finally left New York and I didn't have anyone to work for mm. anymore. Mm. And when I got to Portland, Oregon, my parents happened to write me an email one day. This was the early days of email. And they said, oh, we've decided to get cochlear implants. And I was very, I, you know, these were two deaf people who had been, how do I put it, very good at being deaf, like, I didn't understand why they'd want to be hearing. They wow. were so good at being deaf, and they were 65. And I knew that their that their outcomes would be very limited uh, because they hadn't heard sound, and their brains really never adjusted to it. But I was fascinated by their choice, and so I decided to make my first feature independent film about my mother and father taking this grand adventure into the world of sound, a sense which they had never really experienced before, other than through the impulses of really bad hearing aids. All my life, I've watched my parents imagine the world of sound. Dad tries to see it.
2: Sometimes I use be to hold to. Thank God I have
1: my thumb. Uh to touch it. Okay, don't turn away, it may look like she's here, but it's actually the vibration of you memory know, that mom likes. Words have always existed as lip reading and sign language. But then, just as they were about to retire, they've announced a bold move. They were getting cochlear implants, a breakthrough surgery that after a lifetime of silence could give them the ability to hear.
0: We've had Maury Warshawski on the show, and and he's someone who's always talking about the importance of understanding what one's core values are as a person and allowing this to determine one's mission, if you will, their mission statement as a doc filmmaker, Irene, how would you best uh-huh. describe your mission statement? And is this is this something that you're consciously thinking about as you look to current and future projects?
1: Yeah, yeah. Um, it would have been helpful if you gave me that one yesterday. Um, anyway, so what I would say is that there are two answers to that question. There's the self-interested answer,
2: hmm.
1: and there's... Uh, what I believe to be an honest answer, but it sounds much more altruistic. I think people have a very, very uh, considered notion of what a documentary filmmaker is. They think we're altruistic people. They think we're trying to help the world. But in a way, what they don't understand is that we're humans and we just really like to travel. We really like to sit in people's homes and pretend like we live in their universe. We are people who are just genuinely interested in the way... The so-called other half lives. Yeah, 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 yeah. You know, and I think that that is a certain self-interested uh, venture, right? Because hmm. um, we're kind of lucky if we if we strike gold, we can make a living doing that, right? <laughs> so, uh, no, I mean, really, that's the honest answer for your ninety-nine percent documentary filmmaker audience to this right hey look so, we're, we're
0: 115 but, episodes in and I can tell you probably 10 guests that we've ever had in the program actually make their entire livings doing doc filmmaking so you're t- absolutely preaching <laughs> to the choir on that one
1: <laughs> okay well so but but the other half which which is equally as sincere and I don't mean it to pat my back yeah. but I but I do think that as a as an individual, Yeah. Uh, You know, I was born with two deaf parents. I grew up in the 70s with deaf parents. This was pre-Americans with Disabilities Act. This was pre smartphones. It was in the burgeoning days of the TTY, but well before they were ever in airports or schools. I mean, I grew up with two parents who were profoundly disabled by their deafness and they were disabled from getting jobs. They were disabled from communicating with my school teachers. They were disabled, from communicating even with my my childhood friends and their parents because they didn't have a common language. And if my parents couldn't lip read them and my friends' parents couldn't understand them, there was no communication to be had. And the only way there would be is if I was an interpreter. Hmm. So, you know, I think that my kind of archetypal story here, if if I can imagine it for a moment, is really, you know, that – I have always been an interpreter. Oh, yeah. I grew up with parents who could not just, like, depend on their phone or the TTY or a video relay operator that's mandated by the FCC. These are all things we have today and we've had now for a good 20 years. But when I was growing up, we didn't have that. So my parents' disability, in a way, by proxy fell upon me and my brother and sister. Mm. We could all hear... And we were happy to help them. I mean, we didn't really know any different, right? We just thought this is what everyone does for right. their parents, right?
2: And, and, right. and uh,
1: so I think that um, to the extent that I can be an interpreter for audiences um, and I can take someone's story in Nepal or someone's story in India yeah, or yeah. someone's story India, in Wisconsin, yeah. you know, or someone's story in California and translate it into something that feels universal, to everybody all over the world. And this is where I'm so lucky that I've had HBO because my films have been broadcast and streamed internationally. And the thing that really reassures me and keeps me going is that every time I think I've made a really idiosyncratic film, like about two 65 year old deaf people living in Rochester, New York, <laughs> or like a little girl in California whose mom died of breast cancer. Yeah or, you know, or or a blind person living in the middle hills of Nepal, somehow these films that I've just described find a universal and global audience. And that tells me something that's profoundly reassuring about humankind, you know, that, that we're all sort of subscribing to narrative. We Mm. are all saying, well, that person looks different from me that person might speak a different language for me and I have to watch this with subtitles. But there's something about the way this person is being revealed to me or this story is unfolding to me that feels familiar to me. I connect with it. Mm-hmm. And so the longer I do this, here's the, here's the fundamental irony, I think, in being a filmmaker who follows her heart and follows her empathic instincts, even if they are commercially deplorable right? Mm. Is that the longer you do this and you do have at least more successes than failures, and we can totally talk about my failures, (laughs) but if you're having more successes than failures, it does encourage you to keep going because you think it's amazing that someone in India cares about this homeless guy living in Long Beach, California. Mm. It's amazing that in Abu Dhabi here and now won an audience award. Because people are connecting with two deaf people from upstate New York. Mm. Like, you you know, it's like it's it's profound when you really think about using documentary film as this sort of cultural currency. And when you see that what you've made has value, it keeps you going. Even when you, you invest and then you lose. But you're like but maybe the next one will win. And it's kind of like, that's where it's kind of like gambling too.
0: (laughs) I love it. You know, I, I, I'm envious when I speak with someone like yourself or even a number of our listeners who do have sort of, uh, they feel pretty sure about what their mission statement is. And that is to say they know the types of doc films that they want to make. Uh, I conversely feel like I know more the types of doc films that I don't want to be making and I understand some of my core values, but the closest I ever seem to get to that, and you speak to this here, you've just spoken to this, is this idea that I, I I very much enjoy travel, I very much enjoy the cultural experience, if nothing else, at the very minimum. I at least as a doc filmmaker feel like I want to be telling a story that at least I can highlight a part of the world that maybe maybe most of the world does not know about and therefore try to do it in a way that we can all relate to this sort of human experience that we're seeing. That's the closest I get to that.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah. I don't think it's taboo to acknowledge the self-interest of Mm. filmmakers. Mm. I mean... If 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 what you just described, Chris, is what keeps you going, which is you know to be engaged with people locally, whether you're living in Cambodia, Nepal, Portland, wherever, you know if that's what keeps you engaged, then by all means mm. try to have a go at it, mm, mm. have a go at it, and see if you can somehow be that interpreter, mm. be that be that bridge be that ferryman between the cultures and also you know we, we need reassurance that we're that a lot of us are on the same page <laughs> i think we really do you know we as an american i feel that way right now oh boy <laughs> um but also you know no really i do yeah. and i think you know to the sense that doc- documentary films can be cultural currency. Mm. I think we can be exchanging stories that bring value to our lives. You know, they may not be always monetary value. I, I have films that have not sold that I put a lot of money and God knows cashed in a lot of chips with my family life and you know, to make them. And then they never sold, you know? And so To that extent, we're all kind of gamblers.
0: When I play without my implants, I just feel really joyful, and
1: I can just let my mind wander. You know what Papa said to me today? He thought his life was better because he was deaf. His deafness gave him the ability to hear his own voice. If deafness is a mutation, Maybe our mistakes become our music. Did it sound good? It's beautiful. Moonlight Sonata really looks at the deaf experience over three hundred years. It's it's very character driven. Beethoven is our 19th century deaf person. My parents, or my father in particular, is our 20th century deaf person. And my son, who is now 13 years old, Mm -hmm. is this very typical 21st century deaf kid who has opportunities and technology that Beethoven would not even, in all of his amazingly genius imagination, could never have dreamed of. And my father always thought was sort of akin to traveling to Mars, you know, like we'll get there, but not in my lifetime. And here my son is sort of living out these ideas. So it's really, it's really a film about my family, but it takes its inspiration from the composer Beethoven.
0: We've had a number of filmmakers on the program who have talked directly to this idea of maybe even the genre of personal docs. And this is obviously a, a very personal doc for you. So, so I guess the first thing I'll ask you is how how did your family feel about cameras always running and understanding that this has been a thing for you for many years since the beginning of of, of here and now. But how has your family felt about cameras being around them and what has that journey been like for you as a member of the family and also as a filmmaker?
1: Yeah, so. I squarely blame my mother and father uh, who are deaf and grew up in the forties and fifties for putting the documentary bug, but also just the, uh, the documenting bug in our veins because Hmm. they were two deaf kids who really were misfits. They both, my father was an only child and my mother had two siblings who could hear. They were both outsiders. And for both of them, being visual photographer. My father was like making eight millimeter movies when he was eight years old and he would tag me, he would go on family trips and, and do that. I've got footage that my dad shot himself when he was nine years old. I mean, it's incredible. And then my mother, my mother was the gossip editor of her high school yearbook. when She was (laughs) in high school and she's deaf. You know, she was very engaged. She really wanted to talk to people. She really wanted to find out about people. So between my father's obsession with movie making and my mom's obsession with finding out about people and and talking with them, I grew up like with a camera in my face and questions being fired, fire hosed at me
2: all the time. <laughs> and so,
1: no, really, I did. And so I became uh, very accustomed to that. Yeah. And a lot of Here and Now and Moonlight Sonata, more so in Here and Now, we have footage from those early days where you see my parents sort of coming of age as communicators in a less traditional way, which, you know, was sort of nonfiction filmmaking at that time. And then uh, with Moonlight Sonata, uh, my kids, this film is about my own family and my own children, namely my deaf son Mm -hmm. and my other two children who bring a lot of perspective to the movie as people who are not deaf, you know, and uh they're all just kind of accustomed now, for better and for worse, um, at having a camera in the house and having sound equipment in the house. When we were making Here and Now, the centerpiece of the film from a narrative perspective was following my son sitting at a at a baby grand Yamaha piano. Mm-hmm learning beethoven's moonlight sonata that's sort of the the narrative structure of the film and i knew it and i knew it would be Ah. so i put a i put a celeb light for a year Mm. and it just sat there and every time my kids wanted to play piano they would turn on that beautiful studio light which i got a lot of bang for the buck with that because (laughs) it not only ended up like You know, just giving a little boost to our dim lighting in my, you know, 120-year-old home. In Portland, Oregon. In Portland, (laughs) Oregon, dark Portland, Oregon. It also, though, it also just um, equated, like, bright light and clarity with expression. And they sat at the piano, and they loved that light. And when we were done shooting Jonas, you know, learning the Moonlight Sonata, my kids missed that light. Wow. They missed how wow. bright and light it was. As if, like for a year, we lived in Los Angeles with floor-to-ceiling oh, windows. Yeah. We just had like
0: <laughs> reality TV, <laughs>
1: streaming in all year. Okay, a celeb light is not quite that, yeah. but you get what I'm saying. I like do. there were certain advantages to Mom documenting this, and that yeah. Mom was home all the time. Mm. Normally, when I make films, I'm traveling all over the world, yeah. and for a year, I didn't go anywhere. Wow. I stayed right at home, so there was a definite benefit you know, for me and for my family.
0: So making films like this, right, that involve your family deeply in many ways, you're dealing with a lot of, uh, you're dealing with a lot of uh, potentially emotional moments, right? And a lot of that's happening in real time. So give us some strategies, tips, recommendations, whatever you can think of. Give us a few of those on how to deal with emotions as they're unfolding in front of you in the camera. What's the, what should we be considering as these moments are happening as filmmakers, but also as human beings?
1: Mm. Well, may not be the answer you're expecting, but I'd tell you, you have to be ruthless. Yeah. And the reason why you have to be ruthless is because our limbic system is kicking into high gear when you're filming people you love. Or even if you're filming strangers but you're highly empathic to their situation, you have all sorts of blind spots, right? Because you don't want to stop filming. You're not being a good editor. You're not quite thinking like a director. You're thinking from this place of love and empathy and, oh, well, I don't want to turn the camera off right now because this person's saying something that's so meaningful to them. Mm. But meanwhile, off to my right is where the real story is occurring. Yeah. So you have to make these like really difficult decisions from from the very get go about a where to point the camera,
2: hmm.
1: right? And that's and that's hard when you have three children and you love them equally, but you've decided to make a film about one of yeah, them. Yeah, right. I mean, think about that, <laughs> right? Think <laughs> yeah. about think about the fallout of that, yeah, absolutely. right? So you know, I'm a mother. I'm a committed mother, and I had to be acutely aware of that.
0: Irene, let us know now how we can see Moonlight, Sonata, Deafness, in Three Movements.
1: The film is now um, in theatrical release in the United States. So for the month of October, um, we've already played throughout September in about 15 cities. And throughout October, we're going to be in Arizona, Portland, Oregon, Denver, mm. Peora, Arizona, Scottsdale, um, Southlake, Texas, Detroit, Vancouver, Washington, Seattle, Washington, We are, we are really, um, we're going to St. Louis, um, we're playing all over Colorado. Um, and then in December, we are very fortunate to be getting a domestic broadcast on HBO. And shortly after that, a global broadcast on HBO. So, um, hopefully around the world, this film will be available to audiences in, in many countries and on many airlines. (laughs)
2: And
0: many airlines as well. I love it. I love it. Irene, thank you so much for this conversation. It's been enlightening on a number of levels. It's been extremely thoughtful. Uh, It's been very insightful uh, for so many doc filmmakers that will be listening to this. Is there a parting comment that you can make to doc filmmakers? Because again, I think I said to you early on before we started recording, a lot of our audience are very, very well acquainted with video production, but this might be their first or second documentary film that they're doing themselves. Can you leave us with some sort of uh, I don't know, motivational or inspirational thought, or if there's something that you feel like I've left out in this conversation that you, you you think, Chris, I want doc filmmakers to know this about the doc filmmaking journey. What what would that be,
1: Irene? Well, that's like the hardest question of the whole I know, interview. I know. <laughs> I guess um, there's a few things that I've said and thought about in this interview that I've never thought about before, um, thanks to your question asking. Um <laughs> No, I, I I really mean that. I really mean that. I appreciate um, that. And so, yeah. Well, you know, you, you're asking you're asking the two of us to really think about documentary as sort of a a lifestyle choice.
2: That's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and
1: right. and I think that um I think that the one thing that keeps me going as a filmmaker is how much my filmmaking reinforces what I want to believe about the world we live in which is that we have much more in common than we are different Mm. from one another. Mm. And if you can find a way, even if you're working with the most idiosyncratic character or situation in a, in a, in a country where there is no analogy and there is no like-minded person or anything, if you can somehow make your audience the hero of that journey And you're always thinking about, what is it about my character in my film that makes my audience connect with that character? Mm. If you're constantly thinking about your audience, and I don't mean in a pandering way, in a commercially minded way. But like, why am I asking you to sit down and watch my 90 minute film Mm. about this very idiosyncratic thing? In my case with Moonlight Sonata, that's my family. You guys all have your own family. Why yeah. should I make you sit down for 90 yeah. of your good minutes and look at my family? Because I really promise you there's going to be something about my family that makes you feel at home. And it makes you yeah. not always comfortably feel at home, but you're going to feel at home. you know. And I think that maybe really that's what kind of keeps me going through the films that don't sell. And all the interviews where I feel like a dumbass when I'm finished because I didn't ask the right questions or or I blew it or I really had an opportunity to really make a difference and get something valuable or meaningful out of that conversation. And I screwed it up, you know, but you keep going because when you do nail it or even when you get it partially right, you know, the rewards are really good. They're really good.
0: Well, Irene, thank you for making me feel at home in this conversation, and it's been wonderful to reconnect now here eight, nine years later. Uh, It's been an honor to have you on the program. Uh, The film is Moonlight Sonata, Deafness in Three Movements. Can't recommend enough that you need to go see this, and I'm sure anyone listening to this program will, will do so. So, Irene Taylor Brodsky, thank you so much for being a part of the documentary life.
1: Thanks so much, Chris.
0: A quick reminder: if you're interested in attending our going solo with your documentary filmmaking workshop or any of our other workshops in January, head on over to the documentarylife.com slash workshops. We'll see you next year, Doc Lifer.